0: Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. There is an organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas. Dogmas are lights along the path of faith. They illuminate it and make it secure. Conversely, if our life is upright, our intellect and heart will be open to welcome the light shed by the dogmas of faith. So you'll all recognize Catechism section 89 there. That was a quote. And that's the subject of my my talk. This passage from the Catechism stipulating an organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas of the faith may not strike the reader as self-evident the first time through. Dogmas can seem like a set of intellectual propositions that present a kind of informational brief on what Christians believe, and can therefore seem to reside in splendid isolation from the spiritual life, the charismatic opposite of dogma. Of course, dogma could be used to explain why Christians do certain things. For example, the doctrine of divine providence can illuminate the reasons that Christians practice the prayer of petition. The doctrine of transubstantiation can illuminate the Catholic practice of genuflecting in the presence of the tabernacle in a Catholic church. Yet, these connections between dogmas and our spiritual life remain in some way at a formal level. Doctrine corresponds to practice and vice versa. This doesn't seem to be everything the catechism has in mind. When it stipulates an organic connection between the doctrines and our spiritual life. Instead of offering a definition of what an organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas might be, however, I'm going to weenie out. No. I'd like to offer three examples of it as the best way of learning what is meant. There are three extended examples. The first example is taken from one of my favorite sermons of St. Augustine. Sermon 212, time traveling to a North American church around the year four North African church. <laughs> I'm not a cultural chauvinist. Um, around the year 410, we could eavesdrop on Bishop Augustine preaching to the catechumens. On this particular Sunday, probably the fourth Sunday of Lent. We could hear him preaching at the time of the handing over of the creed. And he's explaining it to everybody present, including the catechumens and especially. Let's look in and listen, although coming from 1,100 years in the future, we'll try to be unobtrusive. (laughs) Quote, it's time for you to receive the symbol, he tells them, in which is briefly contained everything that is believed for the sake of eternal salvation. The word symbol, seems to have been recognized even in the Latin West as the word for a business contract. The creed was called the symbol. And Bishop Augustine playfully tells the catechumens that they are now spiritual traders engaged in spiritual business, and the creed is the seal of the deal. Quote, and your association is concerned with spiritual merchandise so that you may be like dealers looking for a good pearl, this pearl is the charity which will be poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit who will be given to you. Note how Augustine doesn't mind changing the text of the scripture. <laughs> it's the future, <laughs> it's not in the original. One arrives at this as a result of the faith which is contained in this symbol, as a result of your believing in God the Father Almighty. And then he's often running, reciting and explaining the creed as he goes, line by line. Augustine tells them that the faith, meaning the doctrine found in the creed, will bring them to the charity or love which will be poured out into their hearts through the Holy Spirit at baptism. Augustine is informing his catechumens, explaining what we could recognize as the doctrinal basis of the faith to them. But he tells them that this doctrinal information will bring with it a formation in the love or charity which is the pearl of great price for which one must sell everything. In other words, the doctrines in the creed are lights along the path of faith, along the path of Christian life, forming that life as a life rooted in love. It's instructive just to listen a little more to see how closely and consciously Augustine makes this connection between what we could call the doctrinal information offered in the creed and the way in which, once handed over and received, it forms the believer. There is no jargon in the sermon. Augustine knows he's not talking to a learned elite or a company of theologians or philosophers. God forbid. The Latin is plain, straightforward, and always playful. But he takes up even the most difficult and seemingly abstract issues presented in the Creed, just those aspects that we are tempted to regard as the least related to Christian life. For example, the relation between the Father and the Son and the Trinity, not a frequent homiletic subject. Continuing from the passage just cited above, quote, believing in God the Father Almighty, invisible, immortal, King of the ages, creator of things visible and invisible nor must you separate the Son of God from this absolute perfection and superiority. These things, you, say, you see, are not said about the Father in such a way as to be inapplicable to the one who said, I and the Father are one." End quote. Bishop Augustine might seem relentless, not to even say obsessive, in his pursuit of the point of the equality of the Father and the Son. But he pursues it using biblical passages for another paragraph or so. And then we see why he's so interested in the point as he moves on to the second article of the Creed, speaking of the Son. Quote, but since he emptied himself, not losing the form of God, but taking the form of a servant, through this form of a servant, the invisible one was seen because he was born of the Holy Spirit and from the Virgin Mary. See how he's saying the Creed as he's going? In this form of a servant, the Almighty became weak because he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Through this form of a servant, the Immortal One died because he was crucified and buried. The reason Augustine wanted to pause over the equality of the Son with the Father in the Trinity is so that he could make sure that we, the listeners, would properly receive the impact of the story the Creed tells. The one who suffered under Pontius Pilate is the Almighty become weak for us. The one who was crucified and died is the immortal one who never need die. But he emptied himself. And in that emptying, we can see a love which is unimaginably great, that one who never need die chooses to be himself personally and not through a lesser surrogate, as the Arians taught, in solidarity with us and with our suffering unto the point of identification as one of us. The Almighty subjects himself to our hands, becomes weak, submits to all of us in the person of Pontius Pilate. Augustine the bishop is trying to explain that unless you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, the inseparable equality of the son with the father, which seems so hopelessly academic, you won't see the pearl of great price the love beyond all loves, because you won't realize fully just who it is who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Later on in this short sermon, you wouldn't think it was short from how I'm carrying on, but (laughs) it is a short sermon. He gives an instruction to the catechumens, which might seem curious to us at first. He warns the catechumens that when the creed is handed over to them, probably by being recited to them by their catechists and smaller groups later on. Isn't it kind of comforting that, to know that even in antiquity, the church had small groups? <laughs> that they are not to write it down. Quote, so now, he says, I have paid my debt to you with this short sermon on the whole symbol. When you hear the whole of the symbol from your catechist, you will recognize this sermon of mine briefly summed up in it. And in no way are you to write it down in order to retain the same words, but you are to learn it thoroughly by hearing it and not write it down, so that you have it by heart. Keep it always and go over it in your memory." End quote. Probably this prohibition of writing the creed down is a holdover from more, even more ancient times, when one had to keep a dis- discipline of secrecy, not passing on Christian teaching except to the initiated. But Augustine turns this outworn custom into a theological use. Quote, but the fact that the symbol, put together and reduced from Scripture to a certain form in this way, may not be written down is a reminder of God's promise where he foretold the new covenant through the prophet and said, this is the covenant which I will draw up for them after those days, says the Lord, putting my laws into their minds, I will write them also on their hearts. Jeremiah 31, you'll recognize. It is to illustrate this truth, that by the simple hearing of the symbol, it is written not on tablets or on any other material, but on people's hearts, end quote. The only proper place to inscribe the creed is on your heart, Augustine says. This means that to receive the creed is to have it written on one's very own heart. It means that the way that other people should read the creed is to see the way in which it changes the identity or the character of the person who has received it. The Creed, Augustine has explained, proclaims the unimaginably great love of God in Christ so great that something truly unimaginable has happened. The Almighty has put himself into solidarity with our weakness and chosen to be, as a human being, vulnerable to all to which we are vulnerable. False testimony, injustice, suffering, death. Write this on your hearts, Augustine is saying. Be formed by this love, or let yourselves be formed by this love, so that when people see you, they will see in practice the love, the pearl of great price, which the Creed talks about. This, Augustine is saying, is finally the only interpretation of the Creed that matters, the one that interprets the Creed by a way of living. As he says at the end of the sermon, quote, the God who has called you to his kingdom and his glory will ensure that the symbol is also written on your hearts by the Holy Spirit once you have been born again by his grace in baptism, so that you may love what you believe and faith may work in you through love. So this is the symbol which has already been imparted to you as catechumens through the scriptures and sermons in the church, but which has to be confessed and practiced and made progress in by you as baptized believers." End quote. Bishop Augustine, I think, has performed for us here the organic connection between doctrine and life, between doctrine and our spiritual life. You could not find a more organic image of connection between doctrine and life than the image of the creed written on the heart. It is an image of Christian doctrine informing and forming the whole Christian life. In the words of Augustine, the image of the person with the creed written on their heart is an image of someone who loves what they believe, and who is so formed by this pearl of great price, the love of God in Christ as expressed in the Creed, that they are practicing it and thereby making progress in it. That is, being ever more fully configured to it and formed by it. Actually, what we are ultimately being formed by is the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But Augustine's point is that it is this very same love which is contained in the Creed, not something separate or independent of it. An image of the heart with the symbol of the Holy Spirit hovering above it would be a kind of formal symbol of the heart informed by God's grace. But the image remains abstract. I'm just imagining that. I haven't seen it anywhere. By contrast, the image of the heart with the Creed inscribed on it is a concrete symbol of the heart into which the love of God has been poured by the Holy Spirit. There is no abstract love. There is no love greater than the one whose story is told in the Creed and captured in the saving doctrine it teaches. If in baptism, the Holy Spirit configures us to the Paschal mystery so that we can confess Christ's saving mysteries with our lives, with the way we love, with the way we strive for growth, there is no better way to image this than the image of the creed written on the heart. Dogmas are lights along the path of faith, because in a way they are the path of faith. Or rather, they help us see and find our way along the true way, Jesus Christ, so that we don't, in self-delusion, replace it with a faulty footbridge of our own making. In this connection, we can point out that one prevalent spiritual tendency, I would say pathology, of our age is to define the center of Christian faith and life in one-sidedly subjective terms. Namely, that what we're seeking in the Christian life is an intimate personal relationship with Jesus. Well, we are, but where the word personal here means something constitutively individualistic, something verified solely by a certain intensity of feeling. The tendency here is to leave behind the doctrines of the creed as impersonal statements of objective information, which tend to get in the way of a naked, one-on-one, unmediated relationship with Jesus. Or at best, along with the sacraments, have only an accidental or extrinsic relationship to the desired, unmediated, intense spiritual friendship. But who is Jesus? Who is the one with whom we want an intense emotional experience? Is he a marvelously compassionate moral teacher, as Thomas Jefferson taught? No, he is the son of God. But what does that mean? Who is the son of God? Is he God's greatest creation, created precisely to mediate between God and his transcendence and the world of time and matter he he created, as the Arians thought? But then the love he brings isn't worth much. To paraphrase Mutatis Mutandis, Flannery O'Connor, to hell with it. It's not anything to get excited about, as if the true God from true God had somehow cared enough to come here himself with real hands capable of getting truly dirty. But if he had, that would be a pearl, the pearl of great price, worth selling out the whole store and house and computer to buy. See the point? Apart from the dogmas of the Trinity and the Incarnation, we do not know who Jesus even is. It's true, as the catechism states in another place, that, quote, we do not believe in formulas, but in those realities they express, which faith allows us to touch. The believer's act of faith does not terminate in the propositions, but in the realities which they express, end quote. On the other hand, also quote, all the same, we do approach these realities with the help of formulations of the faith, which permit us to express the faith and to hand it on to celebrate it in community, to assimilate and live on it more and more." End quote. The last sentence echoes Augustine's Sermon 212 about progressing in it more and more. Though our faith does not terminate in formulas, the formulas do not have merely an extrinsic relationship to the realities. If we do not know that Jesus is true God from true God and at the same time truly human, we simply do not know Jesus. We encounter him, among other places, of course, in the doctrine, not apart from it. Our personal relationship with Jesus is more, not less, intimate because of the dogmas that capture the awesome mystery of his person without at the same time reducing that mystery solely to the terms of reason. This is why we can say that dogmas are lights along the path of faith. They illuminate it and make it secure. If we encounter Jesus in these dogmas, then they light the way because they mediate to us and present the way, capital W, since they are the fruit of the church's meditation on the word of God guided by the Holy Spirit. The image of the creed written on the heart is also, Augustine reminded us, the image of one who loves what he or she receives in faith. It is an image of the one who, because of that love, practices it and makes progress in it day by day. Thus reminding us of the second part of the sentence I read at the beginning from the Catechism. If our life is upright, our intellect and heart will be open to welcome the light shed by the dogmas of the faith. In Thomistic terms, this is the fides formata, the theological virtue of faith, faith formed by love or charity, the root and mother of all virtues. See, I can be Thomist. But the love forming faith poured into the heart, configuring it to the Paschal mystery, to the sacraments of baptism and then Eucharist, is not a love separate from that proclaimed by the doctrines taught in the creed, which is, in turn, a distillation of the same truths that scripture proclaims, and that, in fact, forms scripture as scripture. Okay, but wait a minute, big guy. If the information of the Christian proclamation is in some way a formation, and if the formation of Christians is carried out in imparting such information, is there any difference? The answer to that question, and you all know, must, of course, be yes. In the lengthy example just given from Sermon 12 of St. Augustine, the fact is the creed is not just handed over, plunked down, and left to somehow inscribe itself on the hearts of the catechumens. It is handed over with an explanation in a homily at mass. And there is a support group of catechists acting in concert with the bishop's explanations in small groups afterwards. The General Directory for Catechesis points out the various tasks of catechesis, quote, are interdependent and developed together. Each great catechetical theme, catechesis of God the Father, for example, has a cognitive dimension as well as moral implications." End quote. We can see this interdependence in the example given from Augustine's Sermon 212. In this sermon, Augustine offers a fairly precise, in fairly precise, authorized language, the doctrines proclaimed in the creed. But he tries very hard to draw out the formative implications of the doctrinal information, so to speak. With the image of the creed written on the heart, he tells the catechumens that these teachings are formative. He explains why it is important to believe in the equality of the son with the father. It isn't just a piece of information, just another interesting fact about the cosmos in a catalog of interesting facts. Giraffes have long necks. The earth is 93 million miles from the sun. Indianapolis is the capital of Indiana. You can see where I'm from. And the sun is equal to the father. <laughs> <laughs> Or to put it in the words of a poem a student in a History of Doctrine class once wrote for me, roses are red, violets are blue, the Son is equal to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is too. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) In the case of Augustine's sermon, he explains why it's important to believe that the Son is equal to the Father, because it means that the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate Is God the all-powerful become weak out of love? Unless you believe that the Son is equal to the Father, you won't see this love. But that's the very thing that makes this doctrine formative to our hearts. Augustine, in his sermon, makes sure the catechumens see the pearl of great price, which the doctrine contains. The doctrine has no value apart from its function of carrying this mystery of divine love so that it can be handed on so that this handing on or tradition may develop and continue. In a way, the doctrine of the faith is like a carrying case, a little suitcase for mystery. You can hand it on like you can carry it, if you don't mind such a humble analogy. Doctrines are the normative way of handing on a mystery. They make it so we can pick mysteries up and carry them around. and hand them to someone else and know that we are handing on this mystery and not some substitute. But in order to hand it on properly, the person has to know it contains a mystery, that it is a carrying case, has to have it opened up so that receiving a doctrine means encountering the mystery it carries so that one can be transformed by it. In order to hand on the mystery, you have to grasp onto the handles, the normative language of the doctrine. Otherwise, it's untouchable unspeakable, ineffable, and therefore has no power to transform those who must hear and be touched in order to believe. But you can't stop at the handles, or you simply end up with mystification, a new intellectual puzzle, reducing in this case the doctrine of the Trinity to how three three things can be one thing and how one thing can be three things, kind of like a Zen koan, um, which it isn't. This somewhat lengthy consideration, now moving into the second example, (laughs) you're going to breathe a sigh of relief since that took so long. Of Augustine's brief sermon 212 on the handing over the creed can give us a segue into showing how the catechism itself performs the organic connection it stipulates between our spiritual life and the dogmas of the faith. So the catechism is my second example. What I have in mind here in particular is not only the way in which The pillars of the catechism move from creed to sacraments to the Christian life, following the ancient pattern of catechesis, mystagogy, and the moral life in Christ, which word and sacrament form, though the order of the three pillars does perform the organic connection between faith and the moral life. But what I have in mind even more in particular here is perhaps the least well-known pillar of the catechism, the fourth pillar on prayer, which is really a pillar devoted to our spiritual life as Christians. This pillar is not simply a concluding, undoctrinal postscript added like a spoonful of sugar to make the pill of doctrinal medicine go down. (laughs) Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Instead, it is, in effect, a kind of synthesis and recapitulation of the first three pillars. It can perform this function because it presents Christian prayer as inseparable from Christian life. Quote, prayer and Christian life are inseparable, for they concern the same love and the same renunciation, proceeding from love, same renunciation proceeding from love, the same filial and loving conformity with the Father's plan of love, the same transforming union in the Holy Spirit who conforms us more and more to Christ Jesus, the same love for all people, the love with which Jesus has loved us. He prays without ceasing, who unites prayer to works and good works to prayer. Only in this way can we consider as realizable the principle of praying, bless you, without ceasing. The catechism thus, you'll recognize that last quote from Origen. The catechism thus aligns itself with Origen's famous treatise on prayer and his decisive exegesis of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray constantly, as indicating the only way to understand how this can be possible is to understand that the whole life of the saint is one continuous prayer. It is Christian life considered in its priestly aspect of living spiritual sacrifice. This does not mean that prayer and life do not remain in some sense conceptually distinct nor does it dissolve prayer in its stricter sense as a specific activity for which special times are set aside. On the one hand, quote, prayer is the life of the new heart. It ought to animate us at every moment, end quote. Prayer is the life of the heart, configured to the paschal mystery by word and sacrament. But on the other hand, quote again, we tend to forget him who is our life and our all. That is why the fathers of the spiritual life in the Deuteronomic and prophetic traditions insist that prayer is a remembrance of God, often awakened by the memory of the heart. We must remember God more often than we draw breath. But we cannot pray at all times if we do not pray at specific times consciously willing it." End quote. Prayer, strictly speaking, at specific times is itself a recapitulation of the Christian life prompting and allowing the creedal memory of the death of the Lord held deep in our hearts to rise consciously, rise to consciously willed confession, gratitude, and contemplation. Because the Catechism characterizes prayer in this way as itself the recapitulation of Christian life, it paves the way for the fourth pillar to perform the organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas of the faith that we have been talking about. I'd like to offer a rather dramatic example of what I mean. And this comes from Article 2 of the third chapter of the fourth pillar on prayer, namely, the battle of prayer. Quote, prayer is both a gift of grace and a determined response on our part. It always presupposes effort. The great figures of prayer of the old covenant before Christ, as well as the mother of God, the saints, and he himself, all teach us this. Prayer is a battle against whom? Against ourselves and against the wiles of the tempter who does all he can to turn man away from prayer, from union with God. We pray as we live because we live as we pray. If we do not want to act habitually according to the spirit of Christ, neither can we pray habitually in his name. The spiritual battle of the Christian's new life is inseparable from the battle of prayer, end quote. The section of the fourth pillar is direct, this section of the fourth pillar is directly connected to the section in the first pillar, the dogmatic section, whose subject is original sin. Now, there's a doctrine we don't hear about every day. Somehow, it is a violation of contemporary etiquette to breach this topic in polite company. The reason? Because it is, as the catechism calls it in the first pillar, the reverse side, so to speak, of the good news that Jesus is the savior of all people. In other words, the doctrine—it it is the doctrine that all need salvation. Polite company likes to maintain the polite fiction that we who are polite and advanced, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. Oh, you are polite and advanced. I don't, I don't mean that, sorry. You know what I mean. That we who are polite and advanced don't actually desperately need anything. We like to maintain that polite fiction let alone salvation. But once you accept the doctrine that all need salvation and the concrete rubber meets the road meaning of it, namely that by our parents' sin, the devil has acquired a certain domination over man, even though man remains free, that's a quote, you have accepted a light along the path of faith, illuminating it and making it secure. One reason is that, quote, this is all still from the first pillar, quote, ignorance of the fact that man has a wounded nature inclined to evil gives rise to serious errors in the areas of education, politics, social action, and morals, end quote. But further, the organic connection to our spiritual life comes with realizing that, quote, the doctrine of original sin, closely connected with that of redemption by Christ, end quote, illuminates the And now another quote, dramatic dramatic situation of the whole world, end quote. Sorry, this quote's interspersed here. Which we see, we can see when we accept the doctrine, namely, that the world is partly, at least, in the power of the evil one, and that this makes man's life a battle, quote. There follows a lengthy quote in this section of the catechism from Gaudium et spes, 37.2, elaborating on the whole of man's history as the story of the dour combat with the powers of evil, stretching from the very dawn of history until the last day. And I think the catechism quotes Gaudium et spes there advisedly, because Gaudium et spes is an opening to the modern world. But it's not an exception, an acceptance of everything in the modern world or any other time in the world, insofar as its fallenness is manifested. As we have seen, this doctrine, the story of the dour combat with the powers of evil, is recapitulated in the section on prayer, our spiritual life. It means that accepting the doctrine of original sin when it has been properly taught means being ready for a battle, means, in a way, already joining the fight, because it is a struggle. It's humiliating to believe that I, a member of polite company, am fatally deformed by sin and incapable of righting myself or justifying myself, and therefore radically grateful for the saving work of Christ. It means that I, a member of polite company, am ready to fight and to truly raise my mind and heart to God." John of Damascus is cited by the Catechism raise my mind and heart to God in praise, gratitude, repentance, and petition. What would you fight for? (laughs) Sorry, it's not a Notre Dame crowd. (laughs) That's an in joke. But it also means that I know these attitudes, praise, gratitude, repentance, and petition, the four classic attitudes of prayer, will not represent a continuous peak experience of subjectively intense relationship with my personal savior. It means asking oneself seriously, quote, in the words of the catechism, when I pray, do I speak from the height of my pride and will or out of the depths of a humble and contrite heart? It means recognizing, quote, that humility is the foundation of prayer. Quote, end quote. and that such humility will be a battle, because it means that we who fancy ourselves spiritually skilled, spiritual connoisseurs, must struggle to acknowledge that we do not know how to pray as we ought and struggle to freely receive the gift of prayer instead of assuming our own positive subjective emotions are a sign of the height of mystical ecstasy. It's a struggle then to seek to learn to pray as we ought and to realize that, as St. Augustine in the Catechism quotes, man is a beggar before God. Me, a beggar? But I have a PhD (laughs) in theology, for goodness sake. Yeah, you, big guy, get down on your knees and beg and take your PhD with you. (laughs) At the same time, if we are ready to, be, to struggle and to be patient, we begin to realize that, quote, the wonder of prayer is revealed beside the well, where we come seeking water. There, Christ comes to meet every human being. It is he who first seeks us and asks us for a drink. Jesus thirsts. His asking arises from the depths of God's desire for us. Whether we realize it or not, prayer is the encounter of God's thirst with ours. God thirsts that we may thirst for him," end quote. Obvious reference to the woman at the well passage. So if one can venture a trip to draw water, admitting, as it were, one's thirst in public in broad daylight and even in bright, polite company, one might encounter the greatest wonder of all, that God thirsts for us, stoops to thirsting when he has no need. And this means, too, that he does not struggle instead of us to quench his thirst thus prolonging it. He does prolong his own thirst, because he doesn't just do it for us. But rather, his grace empowers us to struggle in humility, awe, wonder, and gratitude, even if it makes us feel, on one level at least, terrible and in darkness, not ecstatic. The problem with a religion unformed by doctrine is that it expects an easy and mostly continuous spiritual high, and thus a shallow grasp of one's own humanity and of its incredible depth and power to grow in enduring the struggle that grace poured into our hearts empowers. The Catechism says that the source of prayer, according to scripture, is the heart. It is the heart, it says, that prays. And the heart is the place of truth, where we choose life or death, the place of encounter. Because as image of God, we live in relation. It is the place of covenant." Indeed, the height of Christian prayer, and therefore of Christian life, is the encounter with the sacred heart of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And this means that he indeed is a personal Savior, and not just a Savior of an abstraction, humanity. But to encounter this Savior, who saves persons and not abstractions, it also means the radically humbling awareness that Jesus does not save me from an abstraction, but from a sin. Original sin, which is not just mine by imitation, but which is passed on by nature and so is proper to each individual, the technical phrase. Mine in the sense that I am implicated in it, even though it is not a personal sin. That's embarrassing to find that in yourself. Unlike the teaching of the Protestant reformers, however, Catholic doctrine teaches that the human will is not totally corrupted, but wounded. And that, therefore, there really is a battle against a tendency to evil called concupiscence, a tendency worth fighting because it's not insurmountable as it is in the Protestant doctrine. Baptism, by writing the creed on our hearts to return to Augustine's imagery, which is also reflected in the catechisms featuring the language of the heart, baptism, quote, erases original sin and turns a man back toward God. But the consequences for nature, weakened and inclined to evil, persist in man and summon him to spiritual battle," end quote. The grace of baptism efficaciously places us in a position to battle, to struggle, if that word is better, instead of simply to accept defeat, and therefore to grow, instead of to remain one dimensional, superficial, and bereft of the capacity for giving the benefit of the doubt to others out of our own experience of difficulty. This leads me directly to my final illustration of the organic connection between the dogmas of the faith and our spiritual life. It's it's brief, but no less dramatic. It comes from a text that's familiar to anyone with an undergraduate degree in theology. So it might come in handy if you have to teach it. Namely, Athanasius' De Incarnazione. This little classic is a defense of the Nicene Trinitarian doctrine. It defends it not by arguing for it directly, but by demonstrating what you lose when you give it up. To engage it, we have to remember, along with Athanasius, two things. The first is that the incarnation of the word is not simply embodiment, though it is. We remember this with Athanasius against a certain contemporary mindset to diminish the meaning of the incarnation by relating it to other cases of embodiment, even true embodiment of certain ideals, let's say, in cultural and historical reality. Athanasius reminds us that the incarnation, capital I, is a self-emptying of the word of God and that that self-emptying was not simply becoming embodied, though truly embodied but becoming embodied in flesh like ours after original sin, that is flesh that is corruptible and doomed to death as a result of our original acceptance of the lie of the devil that the only form of life that is true life is biological. Accepting that lie, we've been reduced to it. The persistence of original sin is manifested in the fear of death because we buy into the idea that the only meaning of the word life that is real life, as opposed to metaphorical or symbolic, is biological life, which is, of course, corruptible. The incarnation is the word of God's incarnation in a body whose life has been reduced to the merely biological and so liable to death and corruption. So it's a real reaching out to us. Athanasius comments, quote, although being himself powerful, and the creator of the universe, he prepared, he prepared for himself and the Virgin the body as a temple and made it his own. And thus taking from ours that which is like, since all were liable to the corruption of death, delivering it over to death on behalf of all, he offered it to the Father, doing this in his love for human beings." We mustn't be misled when Athanasius said that he delivered it, namely his body, over to death as though he were delivering over something extrinsic to himself, but rather, as Athanasius insists repeatedly, this body was his body, just like my body is my body, and that, for me, giving it up is giving up myself in a complete self-gift holding nothing back. He made this body his body, the body subject to death, Thus, in the incarnation, the incarnation, the word not only became embodied, but gave himself to the point of becoming, following Paul, a curse. The incarnation is therefore, that's Galatians 3.13, the incarnation is therefore the Son of God's primal moment of offering himself to us, of giving himself, holding nothing back, the primal moment of self-gift because he joined our lawless gang as a true bona fide member, accepting the condemnation to death that all the lawless deserve. It's dangerous to join a gang. You could get yourself killed. Truly joining the gang with no reservations, however, means accepting the liability to penalty that gang membership entails, even if one has never committed a crime and has no intention of committing a crime. This is the true self-gift of the Son of God, his true philanthropia, the love of human beings, that he had no contempt for us as gang members, but loved us and joined us as a gang member. The other thing we have to remember with Athanasius is whose self-gift is this, precisely? It's the self-gift of this utterly true and real human being, Jesus, like us in all things except sin but precisely as the self-gift of Jesus, someone who, in giving his body, gives himself, just like us. It is the gift of the God Word, of the true Word of God, truly God. It's God's self-gift. The humanity of the Lord is a perfect humanity, not despite the fact that the Word incarnate is truly God, but because the Word of God is also truly God because only he could empty himself that far. Only he could give himself that much. We cannot choose to be mortal out of love. We already are mortal. We can't choose to share the lot of the accursed. We already are accursed. Sorry for saying that in polite company. Paradoxically, if he had come among us in a body that was unfallen and original to the human condition as created, he would not have shown us the perfection of humanity, because he would not have given himself fully. But giving himself to us as we are and without contempt or embarrassment makes his humanity one continuous perfect self-gift, perfect self-offering, perfect sacrifice. He shows us the limitations of our imagination, believing that death is constitutive of human being rather than his own life of self-giving philanthropia. Thus the fearful struggle begins of life with death in the person of the noble wrestler, great in skill and courage, who allows his opponents to choose the terms of the fight, and thus the manner of his death. Jesus does not come down from the cross at the last minute, claiming as he justly could his sinlessness, but instead fights death, loving us to the end, taking up the battle, we have no chance of winning on our own. And what happens? I'll let Athanasius tell us, quote, and thus it happened on the cross that both things occurred together in a paradoxical manner. The death of all was completed in the lordly body, and also death and corruption were destroyed by the word in it. So something wonderful and marvelous happened. That ignominious death was the trophy of his victory over death," end quote. In other words, paradoxically, friends, the death of the Lord was the supreme moment of his loving solidarity with us, the supreme moment of his acceptance of gang membership. Yes, I really joined the gang. It wasn't a fake gesture. And I love you so much that I'm not going to release myself from membership. And so the moment of the Lord's death was also the moment, in a way, of his greatest life. Because contrary to the primal and recurring and truly accursed lie of the devil, there is a life that is higher and more real than biological life. And that is the very self-giving love which did not back away at the moment of death, but gave itself. That love is life. That love is incorruptibility. And the sign of the victory which occurs on the cross is that Jesus' body remains incorruptible and is raised, not by magic, but by the love which cannot be killed or corrupted, fully enacted and revealed on the cross. All of a sudden, if we believe this, and if we believe the proclamation contained in the Trinitarian doctrine of the absolute equality of the Son with the Father, and in the doctrine of the incarnation, that this very Son was incarnated the Virgin Mary in flesh like ours, then we can see ourselves differently. Our humanity is not constituted by sin, death, and entropy, or more more poetically, corruptibility. Our human life as image of God with a God-willed share in his spirit of life is not defined by the gang mentality to which we had reduced it, believing the primal and recurring lie of the devil. We are given a new way of saying we as human beings, no longer in lawlessness, but in his self-gift, in remembering it, believing in it, hoping in it, and loving in it, in proclamation and in celebration, and finally, in our own experience of philanthropia, even if it means philanthropia in the face of death. We hold the death of the Lord deep in our hearts. What we're holding there is our own true humanity revealed to us and given back to us and augmented and transfigured into incorruptibility, the life of the new heart, to use the catechism's expression, the life of the heart on which the creed has been indelibly written. And we are now free to give, unafraid that by giving ourselves, we will lose ourselves. The result is expressed by Athanasius in a passage you can never forget once you've read it, quote, that death had been dissolved, and the cross has become victory over it, and it is no longer strong, that is death, but itself is truly dead. No mean proof is, is no mean proof, but an evident surety is that it is despised by all Christ's disciples, and that everyone tramples on it and no longer fears it. But with the sign of the cross and faith in Christ treaded underfoot as something dead of old, before the divine sojourn of the Savior, all used to weep for those dying as if they were perishing. But since the Savior is raising the body, no longer is death fearsome, but all believers in Christ tread on it as nothing and would rather choose to, deny that that, that, to die than deny their faith in Christ. For as when a tyrant has been defeated by a legitimate king and bound hand and foot, all those that then pass by mock him, hitting him and reviling him, no longer fearing his fury and barbarity because of the victorious king. In this way, death, also having been conquered and placarded by the Savior on the cross and bound hand and foot, all those in Christ who pass by trample on him. And witnessing to Christ, they mock death, jeering at him, saying, O death, where is your victory? O hell, where is your sting? For our purposes here, We simply note the resounding connection exhibited in the De Incarnazione between the dogma of the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son and the dogma of his true incarnation of the Virgin Mary as Jesus Christ. Between these dogmas and the path of faith they light up. We note the organic connection between these dogmas and our spiritual life because accepting these teachings is the germ of formation into the generous willingness to suffer martyrdom rather than to perpetuate the primal lie to deny that love truly exists and is our life, is our incorruptibility, and is given to us as truly human in the unimaginably great self-gift or self-offering, or to use the exact word, sacrifice of God himself. Martyrdom or witness is indeed the form and perfection of our spiritual life in whatever form it comes to us. I mention this partly to remind us that although it is another thing that can't be mentioned in polite company, Christians are more persecuted in today's world than they were in the first three centuries. And in fact, they are the most persecuted group in the world today, as John Allen and others have pointed out conclusively. But I also mention it to show that if we give up teaching the dogmas or fail to demonstrate what is at their heart, catechist job, namely the love of God for us in Christ, we will necessarily lose membership in the church over time, because people will see it as something irrelevant to life, and perhaps at best, a nice family memory from the past, worth reminiscing over. But hey, let's not be fanatics and do any more than give up Hershey's kisses at Lent. (laughs) So that's a start. But if we have confidence in these doctrines as saving truths, and if we teach them and unpack them as nothing less than the teachings of the most intimate and, at the same time, most objective love imaginable, and more, then we will keep people and we will grow. Ultimately, it is worth remembering again that one implication of Augustine's Sermon 2.12, with its image of the heart on which the creed has been written, is that the best interpretation of the creed is not a text, but a life, a witness, a a martyria, whether it's actual death or whatever it involves. A witness, the life the creed forms, the lives of the saints, the lives of the martyrs, are each of them living interpretations of the creed, the ultimate catechesis, which is seed of the church. And the wisest catechist will point to these lives and will trust that, despite human failings, their own formation by the doctrines they teach, that is the catechist's own formation by the doctrines they teach, will shine out and reach into hearts where perhaps we least expected it and yet most hope for it, or maybe didn't even dare to hope. Faith and Reason podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.